I'm Rebecca Roberts. Hi, I'm Harriet Small. Welcome to Have You Got Five Minutes? PR comms and marketing podcast answering the things you'd normally have asked someone really quickly about at an event or while making a brew in the office. Hello, Rebecca. Hi, Harriet. How are you doing? I'm good. We got to a thousand downloads. I now feel like a new level of celebrity in my house has been reached. <laughs> Talking about whether going viral is worth it. I reckon if you ask any media manager, they'd probably be rich if they had a pound for every time someone's gone. Could you make that go viral? I've gone viral. I don't know if you remember that, that tweet last year about the restaurant. It's not all it's cracked out to be. That's the thing with going viral. Whether it's for the organisation or for yourself as a person, you have to be prepared for what comes back. So the knock on, you do have to get to a point where you're okay with getting that amount of attention. So whether it be, and also the the bad side of it, so the trolls because they will come out as well, and then you'll get the discourse. So there is a knock on effect, but I guess a lot of people don't think about that part of it. But also there's the subsequent media attention. It's seen as like the holy grail on social. It's just one part of it, and I think the risk is that going viral can kind of almost be seen as like the purpose of your comms plan. And I think having a proper plan, you can create something for the wrong reasons and you have to work through, well, how's that going to play out? Like like you said, you've got to be prepared for like the positive and negatives. If it's something that's going to be controversial, the risk is so much higher. If we debase PR and comms just to be about like PR stunts and nothing else, that is just risky. Yeah, and I think it goes back to what are the objectives of your campaign and why you, why do you want to go viral? I think a lot of people forget why they're doing it. For example, I'll, I'll pick on Doncaster because it's like the holy grail in terms of public sector com social media. If you look at some of the things that Doncaster does, it is related to their work as a local authority and the council. So if you think about the tweet they did recently with the sofa and the and the fly tipping, it's related to an objective. What are you trying to achieve? So are you trying to create brand value? Are you trying to sell something? You could do the best campaign and it could be the most beautiful, creative, and, and it can be, you can have the best celebrity, but then it can also flop and not go viral. And then there's other times where you get people doing things that are not so great. The creative is average but then it, it resonates with people so there's no actually like secret formula to it there's so many variables like it's timing and context a bit of luck you can't control whether something goes viral and going viral is like you know a bonus if it goes viral for the right reasons and you can control that and that's gone well but it, i think it's a double-edged sword if you chase it for our five minutes with we've invited Arvin Hickman who's the news editor at PR Week to talk to us about PR and the industry. Hi how's it going? So first question how does someone get PR in the PR industry? Basically uh, we, we cover many different things in the industry and one of the things that we cover which is really important are our bread and butter trade stories. So they're basically things like senior appointments, um, account moves, uh, pitches, agency M&As and restructures and interesting creative campaigns. So from an agency perspective, if you have any sort of um, senior highs or you're winning any new business, then just get in touch with me. Other things that we do where we do ask for comment. So another really good tip that I would give anyone in the industry, follow the news cycle, look at what's really interesting in terms of a, of a communications angle. If we don't reach out on social media or, or just through our usual channels, by all means, just email us and just say, hey, are you aware of this? Um, so-and-so has a view on this. Um, we, we quite often get that. And sometimes that actually does 
that actually does start an article, you know, if it's something that we may not have come across. So I would say it's, it's a matter of just being as proactive as possible. The other thing I would also say, just be a little bit careful in terms of the sort of things you are pitching, because we get sent so many emails every day. And if they're not really well targeted, or if they're sort of not getting to the point straight away, we tend to ignore them. Um, so I think it's really important to sort of be clear in your focus and clear in your targeting and, and why you think this is an interesting thing for PR Week readers. And yeah, that, that's basically it. It's like PRing, I guess, across any industry. And just to follow on from that, so what makes a good PR industry story? Because if you think about, for example, the what makes you cover one agency that started off as a new one during the pandemic or not cover another one? It's a really good question, and it's obviously a very subjective thing. So firstly, if an agency by someone who's relatively well-known in the industry, then that is generally quite newsworthy. If it's several people who are setting up an agency, then that might be quite newsworthy as well. And sometimes it might just be an agency that's doing something that, that is genuinely quite different to other agencies out there. But there are other times as well where we will get sent something and we might think on another week that it is newsworthy, but because we have so much else on our plate at that time, we just don't cover it. And, you know, sometimes it, it, it's very much about the news cycle and timing as, as much as anything else. And so what are you seeing that is interesting at the moment or giving you insight into where the industry is at? I think what's really interesting at the moment is sort of looking how how the industry recovers. A, lo- a lot of businesses and a lot of agencies have taken a hit. And we're starting to see that actually with our top 150 figures that that'll be coming out very soon. People have been made redundant, um, but now we're starting to see some green shoots. We're starting to see more sort of um, new business activity. You know, clients are sort of unleashing more budget. So I think a lot of agencies are now starting to enter what I would call a recovery mode. And what'll be really interesting will be to see how they rebuild their teams and how they rebuild working patterns as things start going back to the office. I think one of the interesting things at the moment is a lot of agencies are thinking about how do we make work more flexible. I think what this what this pandemic has really done, uh, it's sort of created a circuit breaker in terms of how PR and comms agencies and maybe even in-house comms teams actually worked in the past. But what leaders have now realized is that actually a lot of the stuff that you do in this industry can be done from home and there's no reason not to have flexible working. And now I think people expect it. So a really interesting thing will be how leaders either embrace this or or go back to their old ways. And I suspect the leaders that don't embrace this are the ones that may actually start losing stuff. So I think that'll be really interesting looking forward. I was listening to podcasts the other week um, and talking about the whole kind of workplace culture. And if you've relied purely on like the office kind of ethos, how does that work remotely? And it'll be really interesting for some agencies that have kind of prided themselves on like, we have a wacky slide and free snacks and then not having that. One of the perks of, of agency life was that it was fun and you had your, your ping pong table and your, your PlayStation and what have you. I, I do wonder whether that will be sort of curtailed a little bit and whether some agencies will start treating offices differently instead of being places where you sit at your desk and you, you type away, they're more sort of meeting space places or, or places where you collaborate and you're seeing a lot more people working from home. And I, I think what you'll see actually is, is quite a number of agencies um, downsizing their offices and maybe moving a little bit further away from very expensive uh, central London um, offices. So it's going to be really interesting to see how the industry sort of reshapes and rebuilds from this point. Um, And look, you host a PR Week podcast. How has that experience been shifting between sort of writing, going to audio medium and sort of hosting this new show? I actually really enjoy it. Um, So I I really enjoy sort of sitting down with people and chatting with them. And and the sort of format that we have at the the PR show is is a panel discussion. And some of the debates have been really sort of open and honest and brutal. We had an episode about mental health and we had a couple of the panelists open up about their own problems and how concerned, genuinely 
concerned they are about the, the mental health of the industry. And, and also the ones we've done on diversity and, and we've had people like Julian and Elizabeth on, on those, they've also been very, very interesting, very sort of forthright, and I think very important discussions. I've, I've actually been quite pleased with how it's worked and just how open and honest a lot of the guests are, which is really nice. It's a really nice medium, if you like, for that. I listened to both those episodes that you're, you're referring to, and I think one of the things that I would say is that for yourself, you've actually made PR Week much more accessible for many of us. In the past, we never used to see PR Week engaging with us on social. So I think that's probably one of the benefits of having a podcast and also being on social media and being quite engaging. I think it's widened the bubble a little bit. Thanks, that's really kind. I mean, I, I, I enjoy it. And, you know, I have a lot of friends in the industry now, which is really nice. It's, really, it's a really nice industry. There's a lot of really nice people. And I think it's important in this day and age as a journalist to be engaging with people. So last year you were in um, Sarah Waddington's book, Future Proofing, but actually after me <laughs> right. in the chapter order. And in that, in your chapter, so you talked about how PR Week is trying to create a directory of Black and Asian min- ethnic minority voices and contacts. So how is that going and, and what changes? have you seen so far it's gone pretty well um you know obviously you can always do better i think the whole blm movement um what i really liked about it was that it forced society including people in this industry including people at pr week to sort of reflect on on what we're doing and how we're sort of being inclusive and, and how we're approaching diversity and one of the things that we probably weren't doing enough of was actively seeking diverse voices you know, only 9% of the industry come from Black, Asian and, and ethnic minority backgrounds. It wasn't that we were intentionally trying to not be representative, but it, it, it really wasn't on the top of mind. And what happened now with the directory, which has really put it in front of us, it's made it visible. Um, we've been able to get so many more new voices um, and interesting voices, I have to say, into our coverage. And it's really made the coverage a lot richer as a journalist and, and as a news editor. It's been really beneficial. I genuinely think it's provided a better service for our readers and more interesting content. I do think there are a lot of voices out there who either they've chosen to keep quiet or they've never been approached. So there's there's, there's still a lot of work to do in terms of like finding that talent. I, I agree. One of the problems that we have is, is we only know what we know. So sometimes it's a matter of if we don't know that someone's out there, you know, we've got a radar that, that's so that's so wide. If we don't know that someone's out there, then, then we, we just won't know to reach out to them. I would love, you know, anyone who's listening to the podcast, if you are interested in contributing to PR Week, please do get in touch. And we, we welcome more and more voices. We want to keep growing this. You know, we don't want to stop. We want to keep expanding the coverage, expanding the diversity and the inclusion in the industry. And I think that brings me nicely on to the next question, which is all about sort of like the power book, which has recently been launched. When we look at the list, there's some sectors of the industry or some parts of the industry who maybe don't feature, for example, public sector, um, don't feature as heavily as sort of like the commercial side, internal communications doesn't feature as heavily as the external media relations side of it. So what are some of the challenges that you have when you're actually putting together the power book? I'm probably not the best person to speak to about this because I have a, a quite sort of peripheral role when it comes to producing it but I do know that there is a lot of challenges to producing this list it's a really really extensive exercise it's it's weeks of work um sometimes you know we will intentionally try and go for some of the heavy hitters that we know and are aware of with the public sector I mean Ian Griggs who who does our public sector bulletin he will suggest names from the public sector in terms of internal comms it's it's actually really interesting because we we had a discussion about this earlier this week 
about whether we should be adding more internal comms voices. And, you know, before before the next one, before we're actually going to sit down and, and have a discussion about that and about which sort of areas we are sort of light on and, and how we improve it. It's difficult, though, because, you know, you, you're trying to include people that are very much at the top of the industry. It, it's sort of that balance between trying to get those who are sort of, you know, perceived as being the leaders or, or the most powerful or influential people and trying to be as inclusive as possible whichever way we do it someone is going to criticize us i mean it's it's one of those things where you, there's no there's no right answer um there's always going to be one area or another that's left out and one of the areas that we we're very mindful of was including people from black asian and ethnic minority backgrounds and we set a target that we thought was realistic which was 10% um and you have to understand this is 10% of the very top people in in, in the industry from you know those backgrounds and we did achieve that. And I know that doesn't sound like it's a huge amount, but you have to be mindful that only 9% of the whole industry um, comes from that background. And if you're looking at people who lead the industry or in leadership positions, that falls to very low single digits. I, I think it's a pretty sad reflection of the industry. And we would obviously like to include a lot more, but we were finding it quite challenging just to get that 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 percentage. We really were, like we were spending hours searching and asking people and, and that sort of stuff. So I, I think, you know, yes, we will always be mindful of it and try and do better. But I also think, you know, to a degree, what we do with the PowerBook is actually holding a mirror up to the industry and saying, this is this is who you are. The industry also needs to do something about it itself. It, it, we can't just make stuff up or misrepresent what the industry is. You've talked about your own experiences and not falling into, you know, yeah. your words are like that trap of victimhood and that you, you've got a book bear with people pretending to be kind of racial warriors and sort of just calling out and everything mm -hmm. and, and sort of punishing those trying to do good. And I kind of wondered what that balance was then, because how do you, as a brand or an agency, kind of welcome that discussion? And because you, you learn from that and the growth happens from those discussions and kind of how best to handle it. What's your view on that? I'd just like to provide a bit of context first about that whole thing. This was a really difficult piece for me to write and I knew I was going to be attacked for it. But the feelings are very much based on what I've experienced over many years since childhood, really. The problem that I had with this was that I think both BT and, and Barrington Reeves were sort of trying to play the anti-discrimination card for their own purposes. You know, BT wanted to promote his business and how it doesn't discriminate in recruitment, and he did it in a really terribly poorly judged and clumsy way. But his intent was good, and Barrington cherry-picked one line from that, misrepresented it, and basically used it for his own agenda. My question is, who actually wins here? BT's forced to resign? Barrington has alienated... I would argue, as many people, probably those who need to listen to what he has to say, because what he has to say is important, by humiliating someone who meant well. I think a better approach would have been for him to actually privately message Gordon and say, look, you do realise how offensive what you've written is. This is why it's offensive. I think you need to reflect on that. And then if Gordon had then turned around and said, no, you know, this is what I think, blah, 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 then by all means, go out and attack him and, and, and hold him to account. But to just go out and immediately humiliate someone who you know clearly means well, but has written something really poorly. I just don't. I just don't see how there's any value in that. I don't see how it's educating anyone. Who's actually the wiser? It's just as divided as it was. And I guess this is the problem that I have with a lot of activism and sort of outrage is that it's just constantly people shouting at each other. Whether you are a Remainer or or a Brexiteer, you don't give a shit what the other person thinks. You're not trying to understand their point of view. You're not trying to understand why they believe their beliefs. All you're trying to do is use their words to make them feel or look stupid. And nobody's winning. You're not, you're not convincing other people that they're right or wrong. For me, this is a problem of social media, but it's also a problem of communications. You know, when we try to communicate to people, what are we trying to achieve? Are we, are we trying to communicate a message, trying to educate people? Or are we trying to create division or sow division? I think the lesson for brands, be very careful how you communicate on social media. 
you know, Beattie should have known better or he should have asked a colleague to sense check it because his post was about something that was very sensitive. He also should have taken a look at what the agency has done about improving its own diversity and used this as evidence in his post and actually walk the walk before you talk the talk. I think that's really important. There was a recent example uh, where Coca-Cola ran some LinkedIn training asking its employees to be less white. Now that for me is just classic virtue signal. It's complete nonsense. Should a company that is run by middle-aged white men at its global level really be preaching to its employees that you have to be less white? Of course not. Brands really need to have a license to talk about these sensitive issues before they sort of ran roughshod on social media because they will be picked apart. The lessons here, you know, authenticity and transparency are now so important in communications and I think they're so important in PR. And consumers, if they if they see hypocrisy, they will drop you, they will leave you. So for me, there, there are some, that, those are some really important lessons on, on sort of how you get it right. Well, your point around communication is a really interesting one, but I think people um, feel worried about calling out stuff. And I know there's lots of examples where people have felt a microaggression or, or been like, I'm going to email them privately and nothing's been done and no one's got back to them. And I suppose then it's like a challenge, like, do I call them? I don't want to out them, but like, what? where else do I take that? And I think, well, we all need to be better at being okay with getting things wrong and learning. And I, and I think until we normalise that, no one's going to accept anything. And it's just like you say, it's quite divisive, isn't it? Well, to give you a bit of context with the BD example, and I, I'm pretty sure that there are people within that communications agency that would have felt uncomfortable about what he said, and that would have gone up to their CEO, because BD's not the CEO, and expressed that, and he would have known about that. Now, I know that he was mortified by what he said, so I don't think it's a case that people didn't do that, especially internally, but I do take your point. I, I think sometimes people do feel like they, they're not empowered to approach someone, but by the same token, I just think humiliating someone on social media for the sake of it and doing it in a disingenuous way isn't really the answer. Um, you know, I, I just don't see how that, that really is constructive or achieves anything. Is this obsession with going viral and how it can be somewhat of a double-edged sword. So obviously the Weetabix stuff happened and then obviously International Women's Day happened and yeah, um, Burger King did what they did and you think this pressure to be viral sometimes, it almost like debases everything and you kind of end up with offence on one side of just really ill-conceived campaigns. What, what's your take? Well, I think the Burger thing, thing was really poorly executed and I'm, I'm very surprised that it got signed off. It was just the way it was done. Like there was a tweet that said what it did. It used a very sort of lazy and rather offensive you know, sexist trope. It gave everybody an opportunity to, to sort of react to it without any sort of context about what they were actually trying to say. I, I just think you got to be so careful with these things and, and trying to try, trying to you know be controversial around sensitive issues. It just backfires. Is there really any need for it? They could have been more positive about the way they worded that and saying, you know, we want to see more women in the kitchen and this is why. You know, that's a more positive way of, of almost using that or reclaiming, as, as they put it, that old trope. But the, the execution was terrible. I know everybody loves being viral, but I, I think you're right. I, you know, I think it is a real double-edged sword. If you get it wrong, it ends up being the worst thing you can do. I just don't think there's any value in trying to be viral for the sake of it. Be viral because you're clever. Be viral because you, you, you latch onto a moment. The Weedabix thing, it was a bit of fun. It wasn't going to offend anyone. And then it, it obviously stirred up a debate. It was pretty harmless. It did a really good job. I don't think the starting point should be, how do we get things to be viral? I think the starting point should be, what's a really clever way of creating a, a debate or, or trying to get our brand a bit of fame or, or something along those lines? If you're starting from the point of how do we be viral, then I think you've got more opportunities to be wrong than you are to get it right. Thanks so much for coming on. Really enjoyed speaking to you. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. 
Thanks for joining us and everything we've mentioned will be in the show notes. We're here to answer the questions you need answers to and talk about the PR, communications and marketing topics you care about because we've got five minutes. You can DM us or contact myself, Harriet, at comdovercoffee.com and Rebecca at threadandfable.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate, review and subscribe so others can find us. Find us on Twitter at Rebecca7Roberts and at Harriet Smallsey. 